the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finn. We've got a really good show for you today. We'll be doing a rebroadcast. Lisa Newman, The Glass Plates of Lublin. This is a very fascinating story of a trove of what would be called, we would call negatives. Do people even know what negatives are? We've got everything digital. There's no such thing as negatives anymore. But these were like original taken in the, like the 1930s in what's now Lviv. And people know that city. And uh, it was a great, great, good listening. We'll have wonderful music throughout the show. In the second half hour of the show, we'll be talking about the portion of a kev, which is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter seven and following. We've got a. This is like a really unbelievable story. This is like fits in the historic classification of. Unbelievable stories at the end. Stay tuned till that. Before we do anything else, let's go right to the news. A mother and her young daughter were killed and six others wounded near a Jerusalem mall when a bus driver lost control and plowed into a crowd. People, police, are investigating. An 80-year-old Israeli man and his 30-year-old daughter were killed when a car veered off the road and struck them in suburban London, England. Police arrested the driver and charged him with vehicular manslaughter. IDF forces killed the leader of the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade in the city of Shechem. The team went to Shechem to arrest the terrorist, but when ordered to come out, he fired on the troops. The soldiers returned, fire killing him. As to be expected, Aliyah immigration to Israel from Ukraine and Russia is up this year. 19,000 Russians and 12,000 Ukrainians moved to Israel this year. That does not include Ukrainian refugees who fled to Israel but are not eligible for citizenship. 
Bruce Reinhardt, the federal judge in Florida who signed the warrant allowing the FBI to raid former President Donald Trump's Margolia property, has been hit with a wave of anti-Semitic threats from right-wing radicals on social media and online. Posts include his personal information and death threats against him and his family. Anti-Semitic flyers were dropped at Jewish homes in Houston and Nashville. It was the second time this year. The state has some good news. The state of New York passed a law that requires Holocaust education and schools, and listen to this, museums that post paintings that most must post that paintings might be stolen by Nazis if there's a, any kind of suspect as to where these paintings came from. And finally, I usually end off in a good story, so I suppose this is good. It's like, this is like, thank you for like stopping to hit me type good. There were only 786 acts of anti-Semitism so far this year in Great Britain. It's only halfway through the year, but I guess Britain's a big country. This is a drop of 43% from last year. And that's the news. Why go to a hospital get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Lisa Newman, who is with the Yiddish Book Center in Massachusetts. The Book Center has just published an amazing piece of work called The Glass Plates of Lublin, Found Photos of a Lost Jewish World. And we're just, without me talking about it, I'm just going to let Lisa do it. How are you today, Lisa? Well, thank you, and delighted that we've connected to talk about this book. Yeah, so this is amazing. First of all, for the totally uninitiated, because I had I had maybe heard about a such thing. What what kind of glass plates we're talking about? When I saw the glass plates of Lubin, I'm thinking, oh, they found some like some lady's uh, dishes. <laughs> yes, that would happen if you do a search online. You'll come up with um, plateware. Uh, no, seriously, these are glass plate negatives, and it was a way that photographs were taken, um, exposed to the light, and then prints were made from the glass plate. Um, it's a long process, which I won't get into the technical side of it, but these were done by a photographer um, between 1914 and um, 1930s. And all of these were, you know, stored in his apartment, a tenement apartment building in Lublin and discovered. And again, they're very fragile. So the fact that these made it all those years and were discovered in a, a pile of rubble in this apartment building is really quite an amazing story. 
Okay, let's let's go back a little bit. So how big are now? So now I'm thinking uh, glass plate negatives. I'm thinking of like eight by ten. How big are these these plates? No, they're not. They're probably closer to about three by five. Okay, like the average size of a photograph mm-hmm. at that at that time. So, tell what do we know about the photographer? Um, very little. Uh, up until recently, he's been a fairly anonymous. Uh, character or um, the the man behind the lens, as it were. And through the discovery of these glass plates and all of the work that's being done by the Grotzka Gate and by Piazza Nazarek, um, who was a co-editor on this edition, um, they're beginning to put together the backstory and finding out who this photographer was. He was a carpenter by day, a Jewish carpenter, and then seemed to have um, some sort of a business uh, taking photographs around Lublin. Some of the photographs were taken at his studio apartment on a staircase underneath a skylight, and most of them, as you've seen in the book, were taken outside. Okay. Now, just to, for clarification, in a lot of the books that I read about the Hasidic stories and stuff, they talk about Lublin. They always have in parentheses, Lvov which would mean that, which is kind of confusing. I think if it's in Poland, it's Lublin, and, and if it's in Ukraine, it's Lvov. Could you clarify that maybe? Um, I've always known it as um, Lublin in Poland. Okay. But, yeah. So Okay, fine, good. Okay, so now, um, these these pictures are amazing. I must I must say that I wish I took photography. I took pictures as good as as this. This is this man was an amazing photographer. Mm-hmm. What time period would you say these pictures uh, take take up? What are we, what what are the dates you would say that these pictures are taken from? Um, the date that the Grodzka Gate, who is a uh, folks who are behind preserving these um, and really documenting them, say between about 1914 and 1930. Okay. So this, do we know anything about um, that would be like Depression era pretty much in America? Was the same kind of same economic problems going on in, in Poland? Well, they refer to it as sort of the interwar period. Um, and you can see that there was a really vibrant life in, in Lublin at that point. Um, a lot of the pictures are of tradespeople as well as people, you know, sort of casually milling about on a, you know, on a weekend afternoon in the park. So, um, I don't know that it was a period where there was, um, you know, anything like the Depression there. Um, again, prosperity seems to be prominent in the pictures. People are actively engaged in everything from, uh, you know, there are pictures of seamstresses, there are pictures of carpenters, there are pictures of the railways being built, uh, trestle bridges being built, um, farmers, uh, etc. Okay. Now, one of the things that, that there's a whole huge section about portraits, and there's, as would be expected, uh, there are pic- pictures of people, because I suppose it was the people who were paying for him to uh, to shoot these pictures, is a lot of people have this feeling that Poland, before the war, was a totally religious place, and everybody had this like, shtetl thing, and they all looked like Fiddler on the Roof. But if you told me that these people were extras in a... Uh, 
a Hollywood movie, I'd say, yeah, okay, I could see that. What do, what do we well, say about family life and religious life and, and at that time, Lisa Newman? Um, well, I think that one of the things that is so revealing in these photographs is they really, as it said in the subtitle, capture a moment in time when, um, you know, lost a lost Jewish world. So this was, again, I'll use the word vibrant world. Um, I think that these were people who were modern, um, part of a modern culture. There are portraits of some of the students from the yeshiva, and certainly the yeshiva was a major part of Lublin's um, the city and meant a lot. There are a lot of pictures of the opening of the yeshiva. Um, and again, I think you see people from all different walks of life. And what's so, I think, compelling about these images is that they're moments captured in time. Um, they're unrehearsed. They're not just photographs of, um, yeah, what, what one might expect in terms of uh, shtetl life or, um, you know, or religious garb. Um, you see a cross-section of people, which is representative of aspects of that Jewish culture um, in Lublin at the time. Mm-hmm. Lublin really wasn't a shtetl. It was a major city, was it not? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Thousands of people lived in, in Lublin. Do we know anything about the subjects? Has anyone been tried to, you know, since these were published and someone said, oh, that's my great-grandmother or anything? Great, great question. Um, So, yes, a few of them. Um, And one of the things that we were hopeful for and has been happening is that with publishing the 160 of the 2,700 glass plates in this book, um, people are beginning to come forward and say, wow, um, I know I know that person. And, and a really wonderful story, if I may, um, attached to this is when we first announced that we were doing the book, we did a public program. The Yiddish Book Center presents virtual public programs. And we announced it. And within a few minutes of sending out an announcement via email, somebody wrote back and said, oh, the picture of the six women who are um, sitting by the riverbank, the third one, I think, from the right is um, my aunt who um, died in the Holocaust. It's the last known picture of her, and it is a picture that sat on my mother's, her sister's, um, nightstand. And so she was able to tell us who this woman was and a little bit of history. Since then, a few others have come forward. And um, Piotr is working with all of those people to build out those stories. They keep amazing records and are trying to figure out who's who. You'll notice in the caption, many of the people are identified, but um, certainly not the majority of the people photo- you know, whose photographs are in the book. Okay, let's let's talk about the provenance of these glass plates. If you could give me a timeline, let's only just uh, catch people up. We are speaking with Lisa Newman from the Yiddish Book Center. If you're not familiar with the Yiddish Book Center, I would suggest that you become familiar with the Yiddish Book Center. We've had Aaron Lansciano two, three times talking about various things about the center, even when it first opened up way back when. And uh, so go on online and. and 
Yiddish Book Center and uh, go check them out. Become a member. It's a great, 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 great organization. What they're doing to preserve Yiddish and uh, Yiddish culture, terrific. But um, so we are talking about the glass plates of Lublin, uh, fo- found photos, photographs of the lost Jewish world of the city of Lublin. So take us back. If you could give us a timeline, if you could imagine the photographer stored these things away in, I'm assuming, what might have been his apartment and mm-hmm. then died. And then sometime 70 or so years later, they're now in a book. Could you fill in the gaps, please? Uh, uh, to, to the best happened? of my ability, yes. As you say, they were you know, taken between 1913, 1914, and 1930. And yes, they were in his attic apartment in a tenement building in um, the photographer's tenement apartment building in Lublin. About a decade ago, a gentleman called, and I hope I do justice to pronouncing his name, Christoph um, Jonas, was, uh, had a renovation team at this building, and they discovered um, this amazing collection. It was a trash pile basically swept to the side next to a wall. And it was so a bunch were, of rubble. These were, these were, he wasn't a historian or a, or a curator. No. He, was, he was a builder. He was looking to renovate a building, turn it into apartments, and cash in, basically. Well, yeah, yeah but he saw um, that what was there, and he was very careful and very mindful that this was an amazing trove. And he was in touch with the Grodzka Gate, and they were able to come and help, you know, get these it's amazing as i mentioned before that more of um, them weren't destroyed because again they're glass and they've been languishing and brooms were brushing against them etc so they went to the grotica gate and um and that was in about 2012 okay let me interject if i could please yeah could you explain what the grotica gate is the grotica gate is a municipal cultural institution it's in lublin poland and um, they were established, I believe, in 1988. And the center is really committed to carrying on the remembrance of Lublin's Jewish community. Uh, they have a lot of activities there. And um, the Glass Negative Collection is one of those. And they've worked hard to really, really restore this collection and preserve it and digitize it. Um, the the place of the Grodzka Gate is basically a medieval gate um, that really established the Jewish part of Lublin. Okay. And giving people, uh, people should realize that Lublin was a major Jewish center. The mm-hmm. yeshiva there, the Chach, Yeshiva Chachme Lublin, whose yeah. founder, mayor of Lublin, was uh, one of the more outstanding yeshivas in the world until its close. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the Rosh Yeshiva was the one who started the Daf Yomi program which is very popular. People learn a page of Talmud every single day is there's, there's not a whole lot of Judaism left in Lublin. Well, I think that there is a a major commitment and I I think this collection is representative of it, of trying to um, capture that, that history and to preserve it. And, you know, that was one of the things for us here at the Yiddish Book Center. This was published by White Coat Press, which is the Yiddish Book Center's imprint. And both the Grotzka Gate and their mission um, and the mission of the Yiddish Book Center 
via White Gold Press as well, is to try to preserve and to digitize and make this history and all of these different aspects of it widely available. And so that's what they're doing there um, to yeah, go back and mine that, that, that rich history. Okay, so let's go back. So 2012, the, mm-hmm. this box of, of quote-unquote refuse was turned over to the Grotsky Gate, this museum, and mm-hmm. uh, the, what happened in the ensuing 10 years then, Lisa? In the ensuing 10 years, um, this was found in 2010, as I mentioned. Um, it was exhibited, um, cleaned up and exhibited at the Grotsky Gate in 2012. And they began the work then of restoring, to the extent that they could restore some of these glass plates, cleaning them up. And they digitized them in much the same way that we digitized the collection of Yiddish books here at the Yiddish Book Center and made them widely available. Uh, in about, I think, 2018, um, a wonderful documentary was made about them. And uh, um, Aaron Lansky had been traveling in Poland, and he happened to go to the Grodzka Gate, and he saw this collection and was just completely wowed by it. Uh, and I learned of it when I was introduced to the documentary film to see if we wanted to screen it at the Yiddish Book Center. And um, our other Yiddish Book Center co-editor of the magazine we have here, Pockentrager, David Mazauer, also um, somebody who spends a lot of time working in Poland with scholars and cultural enthusiasts, he knew of the collection. So we decided to um, include some of these in an issue we did about Poland in Pockentrager magazine. And following that, I spoke to Aaron and thought if if Grodzka Gate would want to work with us, it would be amazing to publish this book. And so that's what happened. So we work with them to bring this um, work to publication to get it a larger audience. Okay. How many uh, photos, how many plates are represented in the glass plates of Lublin found photographs of a lost Jewish world, Lisa Newman? It includes 160 images, and I'll tell you that there were 2,700 images to look through. So it was um, it was a hard <laughs> it was a hard uh, you know editing process, but an amazing one because you come become very very familiar with these faces and very attached to them, and you can't help but wonder um, about their stories. Okay, let's actually, that's actually fascinating because my next question was, well, what percentage of it? But um, this book could be a whole lot thicker. If this thing could be like the size of an encyclopedia if it had 2,700 pictures. So I'm assuming, like, just like it is with everything else, the ones that were could not be restored, those were immediately put to the side. Um, I would assume would be the easiest way of not saying this picture is not going to cut it because it's just not photographically uh, suitable for publication. I'm assuming that. So what was the next step after that for choosing only 160 photographs, Lisa Newman? Well, if I may, um, we did include some that are damaged around the edge because I think uh, there were a few that were really compelling. And we also wanted to at least show people how fragile these were, um, and it also reveals some of the process. The photographer, from what we could gather in looking at some of these images, also went in and did some retouching, and so that's evident also in the plates. 
but we try to pick a representative sampling uh, of everyday life. And there were a lot of pictures that were taken in the same location. And so as, you know, as a process for photo editors, you, you try to edit to get the strongest candidates. But again, the, the thing that we felt really committed to was to show as broader representation of what this collection included. And um, there are surprising photographs in here in terms of, you know, people dressed in holiday gear for Purim, um, to people sitting inside their home having a Shabbos dinner or out um, in the park reading, uh, you know, a Yiddish newspaper. Okay. So um, how long did that process take? Whittling down 2,700 to uh, 160? <laughs> how many? Were, were you, like, dreaming about these pictures? Uh, no, I wasn't dreaming about them. It was an amazing experience to do this with the designer um, and then also um, to, you know, work with Piotr and, and Aaron as we were doing this. It was a pretty quick process, to be perfectly honest, um, because of the time frame that we wanted to bring this to publication. Uh, and I didn't dream about them, but I will say that there was a moment when I was at the printer and when you print a book like this, you print it on flat sheets, and then they're piled up on um, pallets while you print the next signature, and then they get bound. And I realized, uh, looking at them, it was, if I may, really emotional, because you realize you had spent many months with these people, and you realize many of them did not survive the war, and you feel like there is a chance to really, you know, honor and tell their stories by having this collection of work together. And I think that that's what the Grodzka Gate has done in preserving this collection. Okay. Now, um, how has this, this work been received? Is it getting out there? Are people knowing about this? Um, well, thanks to you <laughs> um, in spreading the word, yes. Um, people are learning about the book. Um, people are purchasing the book, uh, which is great. Um, we just sent a huge shipment over to a distributor in Europe so that they will be widely available throughout Europe and Israel and Australia as well. So we're doing what we can to get the word out there. Um, and it's being very well received. It's, um, you know, it's just such, and I think this is what caught your attention as well. It's such an interesting collection. And, you know, as um, Aaron Lansky, who is traveling, otherwise he would be on this call, you know, with me today. You know, he talks about this in his introduction, um, the, how these images are so different from Roman Vishniak's, Vishniak's uh, iconic photos of Polish Jews in the 1930s. And um, the significance, you know, the ethnographic significance of this and historical significance. Yeah. And they show, as he said, people as they were not as the photographer wanted them to be. Okay, that's actually quite actually fascinating. I was not actually thinking about uh, the book Poland, which has become, I guess, the gold standard for pre-Holocaust pictures books. But so what how, What was the difference between the, the two styles of the two photographers then, Lisa? Well, I think, you know, Vishniak's intent was to chronicle a vanishing world, and he really photographed mostly religious Jews in traditional clothing. Um, and 
Um, and again, as Aaron Lansky cites, he said, um, you know, avoiding modern intrusions like telephone wires and automobiles in Vishniak's um, photos. And that's not at all true of these photographs. Um, they really show the world as it was. There's something almost um, uh, sort of snapshotty in some ways, but I don't think that that does service to the way he's captured and framed these um, photographs so beautifully in taking them. Yeah, I mean, it's true. And looking through a lot of these pictures, you see people are sitting posed. They look just like... Uh... They went to the local J.C. Penney and got their pictures taken, which is what we used to do with my kids when they were young. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. Uh, I thought the same thing, especially uh, some of the um, uh, class pictures of the young students, um, mm -hmm. and they're all lined up, and the soccer players, et cetera. And um, there's something just quite captivating about that, and a sense of, like, excitement at being photographed. And yet some, to me, feel as though... He was walking through the park and just happened upon a scene and said, may I take your photograph? There, and, and I would just I, I would add to that um, as well that there are um, souvenir photographs. There are some that are showing families who are um, off at a, you know, a vacation location. Uh, vacation location? Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Well, that's, that's really wonderful. Okay, our guest has been uh, Lisa Newman from the Yiddish Book Center. Lisa, what's the uh, website for the Yiddish Book Center if people want to get in touch with it and, and maybe take a look at the glass plates of Lublin? Sure, YiddishBookCenter.org. And if you would also like to see the book, which we hope you will, you can also visit our online bookstore, which is shop.yiddish bookcenter.org, and you'll find the glass plates of Lublin, as well as uh, a ton of other books, including many of our new works that we're bringing out in translation through White Goat Press. Okay, wonderful. That's going to do it. Again, the book, Glass Plates of Lublin, found photographs of a lost Jewish world, White Goat Press. Wish we could talk about why it's called White Goat Press at another time, but it also has significance. <laughs> And we want to thank you, Lisa Newman, for coming in and enlightening us. And this is absolutely fascinating. And this, this book is, I'm just, when I, when I see it sitting on my coffee table and I just, just take a, a half a minute, I pick it up and just get lost in it. It's really, it's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, lovely speaking with you. And we'll talk soon again. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Show. Want assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Finman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. That was really quite fascinating. I'm just like amazed that you can you can such things exist, and it's a it is like I say, it's a fascinating book. Um, I just it's it's just uh, spellbinding to say the least. 
We're going to play some music for you now. This is Eighth Day, brand new song. The song is called Shliach, which means messenger, and the words really mean everybody is here as God's representative on the world. And the expression is that the messenger is like the one sending them. So we have a lot of responsibility then because we get to be co-creationists. Let's listen in. We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community. 
and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Hey, Shulterman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. Up next, for your listening pleasure, this is Ellie Kahn and his klezmer band. The song is called Spiel Alidala, which means play a song. Ellie Khan. Up next, this is a, this is this requires a little bit of an introduction. The song is called the Paltava Nigan. Nigan means a Hasidic tune. Most do not have words, so it's people just going I die 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 die. So it's like the joke is is like you know you can sing along. And there's no words. You just go I die 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 die. This song was written in Paltava 
during the times of the about 100 years ago, Poltava is a city located many miles east of Grosse Point Farms. Uh, it's actually in Ukraine, in the area which is now under uh, siege by the Russians. So most appropriate. The artists are Avram Fried, who everybody knows about Avram Fried, and Yossi Jacobson, who's most noted for his uh, speaking. But Avram Fried sat him down and said, let's just do this one. It's a very uh, moving tune. Let's listen. Just digging, okay? I'm going to ask you a question. You'll answer me, okay? Did it na 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 na
Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. The portion of the week is a kev. It is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter seven and following. One of the interesting uh, pieces that's in it. There's no stories. We're done with stories till the uh, after Sukkot holiday, which is October. So it's Moshe's insight and philosophy. Is the second paragraph of the Shema. This is the crescendo, you might say, one of the major points in the morning and evening prayers. The second paragraph of the Shema states, and if you'll listen to and to listen to the Lord your God and you'll follow his ways and I'll bring you rain at its time and the early rain and the lesser rain and you'll feel everything will be just perfect. That's fine. So we can ask the question, if we already did the Shema, the first paragraph, which was in last week's portion, which was our dedication to the Almighty. We're, we, 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 the hero is the Lord, God, the Lord is one. God's the boss. We're going to do whatever it takes. Okay, good. What do we need a second paragraph for that says if you're going to listen? I already said in the last one, God's the boss. I'm accepting God. What does it mean when I say I accept God as boss? Okay, if I accept your authority, that means if you say something, I'm going to listen to you. That's the idea of the relationship between boss and worker. Yes, hello. And we even go so far as to say we call God the king, and I'm a subject that's even greater than that. As we see that in in Rosh Hashanah, there are 10 verses added to the, to the the additional prayer. And there are three which have to do with uh, blowing chauffeur and three with doing remembering that God made a covenant to us. And then there's three that have to do with God being king, but that's only nine. So where do they get the 10th verse for? So that's the additional verse that it declares God is king is Shema Yisrael. Hero is the Lord of God, the Lord is one. That is actually a declaration that God's king. So the question comes back to itself. I don't need a second paragraph. I got it already. I did it already. And the Talmud asks the question, well, the first paragraph is used as an expression of accepting God's rulership, God's kingship, the yoke of heaven. The second one is expressed as the yoke of mitzvahs, the yoke of the commandments. I accept God. Now I'm going to accept whatever he tells me. Which begs the question, wait, wasn't it included in the first one? When I said that I'm going to accept God as my king, my boss, my ruler, whatever, my authority, my supreme being, that I'm going to do whatever he says. 
So what do I need the second paragraph to tell me I have to do the mitzvahs? It's very interesting. The answer is, is because the paragraph is written in a negative. It says, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. Because in Judaism, you have to have balance. If a person just says, oh, I love God and God loves me, and that means I can get away with anything because God loves me so much. Comes along a second paragraph and stipulates it doesn't exactly work that way. Yes, the Almighty loves you. And then you have to have this reverence for the Almighty as well. It has to be balanced. It has to be equal. It says fear and love are called the wings of the dove. That when a person does a commandment out of an expression of love of God and reverence towards God, it says that commandment just flies. Rather than a person who does it because I woke up this morning, I got to do a commandment grudgingly. So there's ways in which a person could have a boss. As the line goes, this is one of those lines from uh, microeconomics classes, that there's not a boss who doesn't think that the, lay, that the workers could be doing more, and there's not a worker who doesn't think they could be a better boss. So in Judaism, we don't have it that way. In Judaism, we believe that there could not be a better boss. Thank you very much. Could I be a better worker? I could be a better worker, yes. Okay, so unlike uh, what might be out there in the economics books. So we have to approach the commandments, yes. But then our reverence and our fear of God is also based on what? It's based on our love of God. I love God so much, I would not want to do anything that would ruin my relationship with God. And so we need the second paragraph. Bottom line, it's uh, Elul that is coming up. It's like the next week after next. Already is already Elul. And Elul means Rosh Hashanah is coming up. And it's even appropriate now since we passed the 15th of the month. We passed the halfway point from the previous month, the month that we're in Av, which is now. So we're four, within 45 days. It's appropriate to wish everybody, you should be written and inscribed for the Book of Life for a Happy and Healthy New Year. Because that's where now our focus is on. We're at, it's time to uh, to to focus, you might say. And make sure everything's in order. That's what we're doing now in Av. We're going to, speaking of, of course, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back. Don't go away. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Hi, this is Spex Howard. The Spex Howard School of Media Arts is proud to have been a sponsor of The Jewish Hour and bring quality radio programming to the community. While much of the funding comes from its sponsors, listeners like you help keep The Jewish Hour on the air. Please send your tax-deductible donation to The Jewish Hour 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. That's 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. Your help is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Hey, Herschel Finman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? Easiest way is go to the website, rabbifinman.com, which is if you're listening do you know where it is? If you're listening on Odyssey, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Apple Radio, uh, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you happen to be listening to your podcasts, we'll go to RabbiFinman.com, and you can contact me right on the right on the homepage. And like I say, it's like some organizations. If you want to contact them, it's just like 
buried, just like page after page until you find, okay, here's where I get to the context. Good, fine. Okay, we always wanted to make life easier for everybody. It's one of the things I like to do, make life easier. So it's right on the right on the homepage. Contact us, I contact you. Life is good. There's also archived editions of the radio show, other media in which we present Judaism in an interesting and exciting way, and also the very important donations page, keeping you abreast of things. Yes, we paid for June. Yay. Now we have July and August to do. And as we promised that if we pay, if you guys get it all knocked off by next week, then we don't pay. We don't, we don't do this anymore. We don't do this appeal business. So I just need like a July is about half paid. So if we get like a month and a half's worth now, we don't do this again. So do go to the rabbifinman.com. Click on the donations page. Make it a, a monthly donation is also good. Small amounts and, and frequently is also very good. Make it a one-time thing. Don't like doing internet giving, okay? Send your donation in any way that you might be able to send it to the Jewish Hour, 1725 Pinecrest Drive, Ferndale, Michigan, 48220. During the lifetime of the Baal Shem Tov, there was a peasant farmer whose name was Chaim. Chaim himself could not read. He never learned how to read. He had a head like dirt. But he was an amazing farmer. He had, it's like you know, my wife, Hannah. My wife, Hannah, could turn weeds into like beautiful, lush gardens. It's amazing. Some people just can do it. Me, <laughs> I plant a beautiful, lush garden and it all dies. It's like, okay, it's not, I, I do other things. So... At least somebody in the family can get things to grow. He had two sons who he wanted to make sure would not be ignoramicized, and he spent all get out to make sure that his kids, his sons, got a proper education. And in a short time, they became geniuses. They were just like known as the town geniuses. The Baal Shem Tov came through one day, and, I heard the, and they heard them, him lecture, and they became followers of the Baal Shem Tov. And every once in a while, they picked themselves up, and they would travel. Remember, traveling at that time was by foot from their town, which I don't know where it was, to Mezhebush to hear the Baal Shem Tov. The father couldn't understand it. What are you going to the rabbi for? you got rabbis here. He said, oh, this rabbi knows everything. He says, everything? Does he know about farming? He says, yeah, he knows about everything. I don't know that the rabbi knows about farming. So one day the guy says, you know what? I'm going to pick myself up. I'm going to go visit the Baal Shem Tov. And he packed his bag. He, he took some presents, something from his land. And he got a private audience with the Rebbe. And he said, uh, the Baal Shem Tov. And he said, they tell me you know about farming. So tell me about farming. The Baal Shem Tov listed exactly where his fields were, what he had planted for that year, and what the yield was. And he says, it's amazing. So could the Rebbe tell me what I should plant and be successful for next year? So the Rebbe told him, the Baal Shem Tov told me you should plant it, wheat in this area and oats in this area and sargum in this area, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he followed it to a T, and he was like madly successful. So he became a follower of the Baal Shem Tov. He had a daughter, and it came time for the daughter to get married, and there were a lot of eligible suitors as this was – this was the family to marry into, wealthy father, smart brothers, good stock. You know, hey, listen, Baal Shem Tov, uh, so he took, his, took a list of suitors to the Baal Shem Tov and said, I don't know any, you pick one. Baal Shem Tov took a look at him and said, I don't like any of them. He says, this is what you do. Send your sons to me 
and they'll bring back your wife, your daughter's husband. So fine, good. Okay. So the uh, two sons came back. The Baal Shem Tov said, come with me. They got in the wagon, and off they went, and they flew to some town, some place. I think it might have even been Peltava, which is where this song was composed. The Baal Shem Tov, after the Baal Shem Tov came, they made this big lavish meal for the Baal Shem Tov in honor of him. And he said, these two men with whom I'm coming have come for a suitor for their sister. And his name is Shmerel, the son of Velvel, Itzhak, and Sarah Bela. Everybody, who? What? Could he step? No such person. We don't know such a person. Paul Shemtov said, I'll stay here a while. Okay. Time went by, a couple of days. It was suddenly it's the Rosh Chodesh. It's a new moon. In this city, they had a, a custom that on the new moon, they would make a big meal in honor of the new month. So the Baal Shem Tov is there. So they, they put out, uh, arranged the tables, and every table got a little challah roll, a nice little fluffy bread roll. Okay. Suddenly this wild guy who was uh, unbathed and wearing rags, unkept hair, long hair, okay, he ran in and he grabbed the roll. And someone said, Shmerel, son of Yitzchak Beryl, put that back. And everybody stopped and said, that's the guy. They looked at the Baal Shem and said, that's the guy? And he said, that's the guy. So they ran after him, and they caught up with him. The Baal Shem Tov said, give him a bath. Make him presentable. Give him a suit of clothes. And they took him to the bathhouse. They cut his hair. They scrubbed him down. They uh, put a suit of clothing on him. They set him next to the Baal Shem Tov. And the Baal Shem Tov said, do you, would you like to marry their sister? And he said, what do I know? So the Baal Shem Tov took a handkerchief and, and waved it over the guy's face and said, say Torah, say something. And this Shmerel, son of Beryl Yitzchak, spoke for two hours on a subject very deep. So the Baal Shem Tov turned to the brothers and asked, do you want him to be your brother-in-law? Said, yeah, 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 yeah. So off they went, and they get married, and uh, there was a week of Sheva Brachas, and every day during the feasting, the new son-in-law said over a deeply powerful speech, and then after Sheva Brachas, they came, they were going to learn with him, I want to learn this with this, this person, and uh, he was asleep, it was the middle of the afternoon, or he's still sleeping? So they woke him up and said, what, what gives? And he said, ah, leave me alone, I'll wake up, I'll get to it, I'll get to it. They saw that this is this is not the same person that they they married. So they ran right away back to the Baal Shem Tov. And they said, what gives? So they said, up in heaven it was decreed that this man should marry your sister. There's only one problem. He's a coarse boor. How's he supposed to marry your sister? She's like a refined person. Your, your father is wealthy. So they said, okay, you know what we could do? We can make her deformed. I came out and I said, no, you can't make her deformed because the father's wealthy and uh, he'll find a way to find somebody to marry her. And he said, okay, we'll kill the father. No, nope, can't do that either. This is, he said, this is what I'm going to do. He says, I'll make him presentable for a week and hopefully something will rub off. So that's what happened is with waving the handkerchief, I opened up the gates of Torah before him, but I could only get it to last for seven days. After the seven days... He was such a coarse person. But you should know, he is your sister's intended. Go and learn with him, and you will see. And they spent time, 
and they worked with him. They taught him how to read. They taught him how to daven. They taught him some Torah. And his children, their children, went on to become Hasidim of the Aptareb. Everything worked out for the best. Speaking for the best, I want to thank you for tuning in. That's going to do it. We hope we had a chance to entertain you a bit. We hope you had a chance to entertain you a bit, educate you a bit, entertain you a bit. It's all, it's all good. We'll hope to see you again back next week. Take care. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.